0: Great. Uh, So today we are beginning a new sermon series as a church, and uh, we're going to be spending some time for the next uh, few weeks in the book of Daniel, which should be exciting. Um, But before we jump into Daniel, back in 2008, the world faced um, a period of rapid cataclysmic change in the global financial crisis. And it's hard to still fully understand what happened all those years ago, if someone asked what happened at the GFC, most people are like, the money went bad, economy, yeah, economy is bad. So, what happened, if you're like truncating a very complicated problem to a sim- very simple answer, is that people started betting on the housing market in the states. And they started betting these extravagant huge bets that they would never fail. And then they made bets upon those bets. And then people made bets upon those bets. And then they sold these bets to banks all across the world. And then in 2008, something happened that had never happened before in economic US history. The housing market totally collapsed and everything fell apart. And because the system had gotten so big, banks all across the world were all compromised because they'd all been selling these huge bets to one another and every country as we know was pretty much hit by the crazy betting of a few people in one country. It's phenomenal. And one of the crazy things from the global financial crisis in 2008 that has people scratching their heads, the thing that people kept on asking was, how did no one see it coming? Right? Like these are some of the most well-paid people in the industry. These are supposed to be the smartest people in the world and hardly anyone saw it coming. It shocked everyone. And uh, they asked one guy named Steve Eisman, he was one of the few people who, he did see it coming, one of a handful of people, and he placed some bets against the housing market, against all these leverage bets, and he made truckloads of cash, because he was the only person who thought it would fail. And uh, they asked him, how did you see it when no one else did? And how did all these big, giant firms that are supposed to know more than anyone else, How did they get away with it? Like, how did they get caught unawares? And what he said was fascinating is he said, in all of their financial models for planning for everything, they plan based on the assumption that things are going to keep going roughly as they are. There's maybe 20% it's going to grow or 20% it's going to tank, but they always assume what's happened ahead of us is what's happened behind of us. And what they didn't plan for is that you could have huge cataclysmic sweeping change happen fast. And it's that bad assumption that caused a giant crisis, which we only, what, just got the tail end out of? And what happened again? An unexpected crisis, which no one ever expected will happen, happened. And we find ourselves in this world where this illusion of safety and normality keeps getting broken, isn't it? I mean, in New Zealand, now that COVID-19 has settled, we feel, I mean, as a country, we're pretty secure compared to the rest of the world, right? Like we feel like we can go out and do whatever we want, but the news keeps reminding us that we're one person jumping a fence and going to a countdown away from that all changing again, right? God bless that person and God bless the team. We've got to look after the quarantine centers. I feel for him. Can you imagine being a security guard, having to chase down the dude who's like running away from quarantine? (laughs) That's terrifying. But we're one short blip away from us being brought back into a period of total upheaval that the world is in. The world has faced rapid change really, really quickly. And beyond that, it's not just the global financial crisis. It's not just COVID-19. If if we're honest, we feel like so much has changed really fast in recent times, eh? I mean, it was only a month ago that George Floyd was murdered on camera, which then led to racial protests, not just across the U.S., but across the world. And before we knew it, statues of all these heroes or figures started coming down, not just in the U.S., not just in the U.K., but even here in New Zealand. That discussion has reached our shores, and now we are again discussing the role of race in society. were you ready for that talk? And then beyond that, in the past 20 years, uh, definitions, ideas, and language around gender and sexuality has radically changed. The way those words, what they meant 20 years ago, mean different things now. And if you're not up to date, if you've not been in university recently, it can feel dizzying as you have to learn a whole new raft of language to, to grapple with the way that gender and sexuality and those understandings have changed in modern society. It's a lot of change, rapid change, very quickly. And not all that is bad, mind you. A lot of that change has been really, really important. Some of it has been really, really valuable to learn and discuss. But it can leave us feeling a bit like a lot's happening. You can feel anxious, you can feel struggling. And the question that underlies all of that is where is faith in the midst of that? What is God doing in the midst of a global pandemic? What is God doing in the midst of racial unrest all across the world? What is God doing in the changing understandings of of gender and sexuality across our world? And it's not even in the big things. In each of our lives we will come to crisis points when things have changed really, really rapidly and we have to figure out how faith works in that. Whether it's a dramatic relationship change, maybe getting married really, really fast, Uh, maybe it's going through a divorce that you never thought would happen. Maybe it's a job that you relied on and you thought was gonna be really secure gets swept out from underneath your feet and you're staring looking at the future not knowing the way forward. Maybe it's the death of a loved one, a parent, or a child. Most of us will have gone through those crisis moments and one of the hardest things to deal with is where is faith when things change really really fast. Where is God when things are moving so fast and we don't know the outcome that's ahead of us. That's, our, that's, our, that's the air we breathe, isn't it? It's the world we live in. And the reason I talk about all that is the reason why I want us to spend some time in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel itself is a book that deals with questions of where is God in the midst of radical, cataclysmic change. Can God be faithful even under governments and leaders that seem different from what we would have hoped for? Can God still be with us even when all the promises that we thought we were waiting for seem to have gone empty? These are all questions that the book of Daniel wrestles with. And so we're gonna spend a few weeks walking through this together to see what God might say to us. And what does faith look like? Not in Jerusalem where we feel in control and we feel safe and everything's secure and everything makes sense. But what does faith look like In exile, in Babylon, when things don't make sense. So we're going to just dip our toes in the water. We're going to go through quite a bit bit of this book together. But today, we're going to just dip our toes in the water. We're going to look at two verses, (laughs) because that's enough, right? Just two verses. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be opening up to Daniel chapter 1. The text will be up on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open those up, because it's helpful to, if you get bored, you can read on ahead from me. And Daniel's filled with great stories, so you can do that there. So we're going to be opening up and we're going to take a look at Daniel um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is where it sets the context of the book. It's opening up saying the world that we're walking into when we read these stories. And it starts by saying this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Small verses, but they tell a huge, huge story. So for those who don't know, um, at this point in time in history, uh, it's helpful to know what's happening and how did this get here. What had happened is Israel. Remember, most of us know the stories of King David, good dude, Goliath Slade, good king. We all like him, right? Well, after David and his son Solomon, everything went nasty, and the kingdom went through a civil war and split into two kingdoms. Israel was the kingdom in the north, and then Judah became the king in the south, uh, the kingdom of the south. And they existed that way for quite a few years until about 200 years after David, around 700 BC, um, the Assyrian army came through and basically devastated Israel. They demolished Samaria, its capital. They took all of the Israelites out into exile. They deported them and put them into foreign lands. And most of the tribes that lived in the northern kingdoms still to this day have been lost. Um, When people talk about modern Jewish people, usually they come from either the tribe of Judah or Benjamin, which is the lower tribe, the lower kingdom. And when Assyria came through, They swept through Israel and destroyed it and came right down to the kingdom of Judah. And they came right down around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was this close to falling apart. Like the army was around it and they thought this is the end of us as well. But you can read the story in Isaiah. What happened was one of those classic Christian stories. You know, the ones that we love to tell at testimony time where at the last minute God came through. That's what happened for Jerusalem. They were praying and the king Hezekiah calls out to God for help. And so the way it's described in Isaiah is God sends an angel and he defeats the enemies of Assyria. In one night they wake up and the entire force of Assyria is decimated and the king has to leave with his tail between his legs and Jerusalem survived by the skin of its teeth. It was crazy. It was this remarkable moment of God's victory. And Jerusalem and Judah got this complex from that point on where they were like, oh, yeah, we're kind of hot stuff. God likes us. Nothing's going to go wrong. And the prophets began imbibing this kind of culture of God's with us. He saved us. He'll always save us. He'll always protect Jerusalem. Jerusalem can never fall because it's God's holy city. And this whole culture developed around it. And then new kings came through and then about a hundred years passed and Judah began making all the same mistakes that the northern kingdom Israel made. They turned away from God, they made alliances with all these foreign kingdoms, there was all kinds of idol worship and rampant injustice as the ruling class begins to oppress the poor in their nation. And God begins to call them out on it, calling them to repent, turn around, stop these evil ways, return back to me. But to be honest, the prophets who said that were in the small minority. The large majority of prophets that were sitting in the kingdoms and the courtyards actually were singing a different story. They were remembering God's story, saying, this is how it's always been. God saved us in the past. He'll always save us in the future. In fact, Jeremiah calls out these prophets in his book. He says, look, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encu- uh, you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah said, if you don't turn, it's going to get rough. God's going to send another kingdom. And what happened to Israel is going to happen to you. But they never thought it would, right? GFC, what's happened before will always happen again. That's how faith works. But as Daniel tells us in the opening chapters, that's not how it works. And this is what we read. Jeremiah tells the story about the fall of Jerusalem in another language. He says, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and he laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, Zedekiah's 11th year, the city wall was broken through. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile uh, to Babylon the people who remained in the city among those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. And it was radical change, heartbreaking change. If you want to read the pain of this exile, open up in your book to a book called Lamentations, where you read the mourning prayers of the people who lived through this. It was horrible, starvation, slaughter. And they're wondering, how could God be faithful in the midst of this? How could God be with us, us, his chosen people, if he lets this happen to his children? It was the key question that they wrestled with, and that's the context of Daniel. When we walk into it, the promises of God seem to have failed. Things have changed faster than they ever thought could happen, and where is God in the midst of it? It's disconcerting, eh, when you lose all your bearings and understandings and get thrust into a different scenario. In a small, small way, I remember this. Um, I had the privilege, before I was a pastor, I worked with a missions organization called Youth with a Mission. And I got to travel a lot to different countries. And I grew up in Mexico, so I knew how to speak Spanish, and I didn't know how to speak English. And then when I was in Europe, I kind of knew enough French to get my way around. And I'd picked up enough German to at least say hi and thank you. Everybody knows Danka, right? So I learned those things. But there was one day I went on a flight and I went to Sweden. And I was in Sweden and I was like going to go to the store and I was going to buy something. And I went through the whole thing, went through the whole payroll, paid it. You don't have to do much chit chat. You just smile. <laughs> yeah, I'm Good at it, right? And then I suddenly got to the end of the transaction and I suddenly wanted to say thank you. I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how to say thank you, like not even the slightest clue of how to say thank you in Swedish. And it was such a disorienting feeling. I literally mumbled like, I was like, oh, th- thank tak, dunker. <laughs> Don't look at me. Found out later it was tak. It's the cutest way to say thank you, tuck. But anyway, or I remember there's a time when I was in India And like all the rules had changed. And in India, you don't use a lot of silverware. You eat the food with your hands and you eat with your right hand because your left hand is occupied for other things. And um, you learn, right? I was like, cool, I'm down with this. I'm fine with that. So I was eating. And then there was a moment when we were eating and someone's like, hey, can you pass me one of the chapati over there? And suddenly I had this crisis moment of like, this hand's covered in curry. This hand's not covered in anything, but I still shouldn't use it. And there's this disorientating feeling where I was like, "Ha!" No, I didn't do, I just waved at them and I think they just got it because I obviously looked awkward and uncomfortable. But when we face periods of rapid change, when you lose all your bearings, it can be terrifying. You lose the security and the grounding that helps you feel stable and calm and you get overwhelmed with anxiety, right? Many of us will know that feeling. If we're honest, the last three months, some of our lives have been characterized by this. And often when you have this radical change, sociologists tend to see that people have one of two reactions to it. Um, We can swing like a pendulum one way or the other. And the first one is we get a high level of distrust. When the patterns are broken and the promises fall apart, we can get really cynical, thinking, nah, what's the point of even caring? What's the point of even trying? I mean, I felt that way with church restrictions. At the beginning, I was trying really hard to be like, okay, what's the government going to do? How do we adapt? How am I going to be ready on my heels to change the church for whatever Jacinda says is next? And then like three weeks in after it changed 14 times, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Just Whatever she tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And then that's one of the crises of our world. This is a, um, a group of researchers in Berkeley. I don't know how sociologists do this, but they tried to track the amount of information that has been created throughout human history and put that into actual data amounts, like gigabytes, uh, megabytes, and they tried to quantize it. And so what they did is they looked at all of the kind of different technological growth. So you have over here like cave paintings, writing, uh, here is paper, printing, electricity, telephone. That growth at the bottom is the amount of information humans have created, and they found something fascinating is that since the growth of the internet, humans have started creating more information at faster rates than ever before. And they found that in the year of 2001, in just the year of 2000 to 2001, more information was written down and created in that one year than the rest of human history combined. More websites, more blogs, more ideas were written then than ever in human history and it's only been on an exponential rate rising since then. And they said one of the challenges of this is that there's an information overload that we face. And any truth claim, any time someone tries to tell you something with authority, a lot of us deep down know that if you spend enough time Googling online, you can find information that challenges that authority, right? So it doesn't matter whether it's the president or Jacinda, there's always some alternative facts we can find online. And what it's led is to a culture of distrust and a lack of care and engagement because we assume everyone's biased. If information is infinite, there's always an opposing viewpoint, right? And the danger is it can cause us to become distrustful and honestly, we just meme about it because we can't do anything about it. And this is particularly a characteristic I would see of my generation is that amidst the global crises that we're facing, Are we particularly good at getting stuck in and actually effectively changing or building something? Not particularly, but we are really good at building memes about it that make us laugh as we scroll through Instagram, right? Because what's the point of caring? Why try? Why invest anymore if the promises that were there have already failed you? If there's already an alternative story you could believe in? And the danger is we can easily get cynical and just create memes and laugh, but never effectively actually grow in our faith, never build anything in our families, never actually take a stand to move forward with anything. As a side note, my favorite New Zealand meme were the Ashley Bloomfield memes. God bless him. This is a a tea towel that someone hand-stitched of his face. (laughs) Did you see the Ashley Bloomfield memes? They were incredible. There were whole songs written about the man. God bless him. So it's easy in the midst of crisis to disengage to shut down, to become cynical, and to think nothing really matters. The other option is we can swing the other way, and we can try and protect our mental framework, protect our understanding. We reject any new information that threatens us, and we hold on to any grasp of something that can reinforce the thing that we always believed. And the danger with holding on to this one is that we can often become quite conspiracy theory-prone. I mean, what are conspiracy theories other than taking a really complex problem and offering you a perfect, easy solution for it? One narrative that makes sense in your head, that you can just trust and it reaffirms your identity. Don't think about it too much. I don't know how Bill Gates is depopulating the earth, making money off of vaccines, giving that to the WHO and making us all take it. Like, don't think about the details, that's not the point. The narrative, it makes sense and it comforts us. Because all we're trying to do is protect our own perspective and protect our own viewpoint. Does that make sense? We can, with these radical changes, we can often drift into one of these places and then we become more rigid. We become terrified of anyone who thinks differently than us. We begin to um, other them where they become the them who are dangerous and the people who think like me, those are the safe ones that I'll hang out with. And we can see that in the way our societies have become increasingly polarized, right? Where we only agree with the people that we agree with and we're terrified of the people that disagree with. This is all just building up to the dangers and the difficulties of the world that we face. And often faith, it can at first seem like it's a silver bullet solution, right? Well, God said it. I believe it. We'll just read the story here. God will fix it. That'll make it easy. What I love about Daniel is that Daniel doesn't fall into either one of those categories. Daniel doesn't allow us to just get cynical and say, well, nothing mattered. God is gone. Do your best. Have your fun. That's the end of life. No, one of Daniel's huge points is God is still in control and with us, but nor is Daniel a simplistic book that says, just do this and you'll be better. In fact, Daniel is an incredibly complex book, one of the most complex books of the Bible besides Revelation, (laughs) which probably makes sense for why we're doing it. I'm sorry, I'm a glutton for punishment. I love the controversy and we can learn together, right? But there are things about Daniel that scholars still disagree on. Permit me to be a nerd, a Bible nerd, for just a few minutes. I think you'll find it fascinating. In Daniel, there are 12 chapters. And when we look at it in our Bible, those 12 chapters are all in English, and they all... Um, there's two halves. The first half are all stories of Daniel in the court, Daniel in the lion's then you know, the ones you learned in Sunday school, but are now horrifying that you think about as an adult. There's those. and. Um, The back half is all like these prophecies and visions. It's all apocalyptic language with beasts and sea. And those of you who did Revelation will be familiar with that kind of work that we did last year. But did you know that Daniel is actually written in two languages? When we arrive, the original manuscripts that we get it in, it comes literally in two different languages. Chapters 1 and 7 through 12 are all in uh, Greek. And so that introduction chapter and all the back half, the prophecies, those are all written in Greek. While the court stories and that first vision are all in Aramaic. And so scholars are trying to figure out, how do you have a book that's just written in two languages? Why would, if Daniel wrote it, why would he suddenly change language halfway through? And so scholars have fought about that really, really hard. There's huge questions around when it was written. Um, Conservative scholars will say that this was all written as a prophecy by the person Daniel in the sixth century in exile. So Daniel wrote all of it, and we have his writings. And that's a a position that a lot of scholars hold, but there's some real challenges with that. For example, why would Daniel in Babylon write in Greek? The Greeks, Alexander the Great hadn't swept through yet, so why would he be writing in a language that hadn't hit their land yet? So that's a challenge, and then another thing that even the most conservative scholars have to deal with is at the back half of Daniel, Daniel begins making all these prophecies about future kingdoms and what's going to happen, and they are really, really, really accurate up until a point. There's a point in Daniel chapter 11 where the prophecies seem to line up with history as we know it, but at one point then history and the way Daniel tells about it seem to be different. And so some scholars will say that actually, Daniel was probably written in the second century under Greek rule. And it was all written about them trying to understand how do you be faithful amidst a Greek oppression. And they looked back to this metaphorical figure of Daniel during Babylonian times and then wrote under his name. Crazy, eh, right? Now, when I tell you that information, how many of you have gone cynical and said, oh, the Bible is useless, I can't engage? And then how many of you have tried to protect your narrative saying, oh, those liberals are crazy, it's this, right? See how that Daniel prompts that response within us? Or is it something in between? Did the stories of the courts and the Daniel and the Lies, den, did those exist and were handed down and then were joined together with the apocalyptic writings of the second century? These are the things scholars still don't agree on. Even on top of that, sorry, one last little factoid that just makes me really happy. Daniel shows up in different places in different Bibles. So in Hebrew Bibles, if, uh, if you meet a Jewish person who just has the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible, Daniel is actually not put with the prophets. He's put with wisdom literature. So he shows up with Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, not with the prophets. While in our Bibles, he's with the prophets. And then in some texts, Daniel even has three chapters That aren't in our texts. There's a whole narrative about him, a prophecy about a dragon. There's him as a detective sneaking out, figuring out who's doing the dirty deeds, and he's the smart detective solving the answer, and God's helping him. The Bible's great. It's full of weird stuff. I love it. But it's a complex book that still challenges our narratives, and it challenges how we think about it. But this, at the very core, is why I love Daniel, and I want us to spend some time in it. We were gonna fight and we're gonna disagree about how it all fits together. We don't know, it doesn't fit our easy narratives. But the narrative of Daniel itself is that things get hard sometimes. Things rapidly change. Sometimes the promises that we thought were gonna come through don't come through in the way that we want. But the message of Daniel is at the core of it, God is still in control. Going back to those first verses, you'll notice right here, Um, In verse 2, it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So even in the midst of their exile, God was faithful to them. Uh, Chumper Longman, one of the commenters on Daniel, he says this. In other words, the story of Daniel informs the reader that Nebuchadnezzar's intrusion into Judah, it was not a historical accident. God gave Jehoiakim into that pagan king's hands after all. But Daniel 1 also reveals that God had not abandoned his people altogether. He was not only with the faithful in exile, but as with Joseph in the Egyptian prison, God was blessing them, allowing them to succeed in what might be considered nearly impossible situations. And this is at the heart of Daniel. Life is complex. Things change rapidly. And our lives don't always fit the narratives that we hope they will. Our lives don't always go along the trap where everything works out according to plan. We get hit with things that we never saw coming. And while lots of us would love to disengage with faith or try and turn it into the simplistic ritual that God is forced to do what we want him to do, Daniel says, no, have faith. God can be with you even in the midst of that change. Even in the midst of a global pandemic that is rapidly changing our job world, God can be with you and you can thrive in that space. Even if your job has left and you don't know what you're going to do, God can be with you and you can thrive in that space. Even if your relationships have rapidly changed and even if you don't fit the normal Christian narrative, if you don't look like the poster boy Christian who can preach on a Sunday, if you don't fit that, that is okay. Okay. Because God is faithful not in the perfect things, but he gets into the grit and the messiness. In a book that is hard to understand and is wrought with controversy, in a people who lost their whole world and didn't even know how to understand faith, God was with them. And what we will see through the stories of Daniel is that even in those difficult scenarios, even in the midst of change, God can give us wisdom. He can give us great favor. We can find ways to be faithful to Jerusalem, even living in Babylon. He can give you hope in whatever scenario you are walking through. And so we're going to spend some time learning and growing in this book together. And I hope you are as encouraged as I am. I wonder if we can stand and pray as the team leads us in one last song. I know that was a lot. I know sometimes it's like a fire hydrant of information. Some of you are like, wait, no one ever told me about the Bible before it. That's okay. Jesus still loves you. It's complicated, but it's okay. But I do want to encourage you with the core message of Daniel here today. And that whatever you are facing, whatever difficulty you are in the midst of, regardless of whether your life fits the pattern of what we expect a standard Christian to look like, or whether it has utterly devolved from that into chaos, and you're wondering, does God even care? And can I even be present in a place or a community of faith like this? Daniel would say, God is with you. And he can resurrect and restore even the most difficult, broken things. Even when all those promises are shattered, he is still with you. And he can work for you to thrive in the place that you are in. So let's pray.